Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absite podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose a partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at behindthenife.org. Applications are due February 13th. All right, so we're just going to jump right into it. So, John, when you have a patient that has a platelet disorder, what is going to be abnormal in their cascade? Well, that's an easy one, Kevin. Bleeding time is going to be abnormal. Right. So this is important. You have to know these things. They're going to ask um, when you're looking at the PTTs and everything to determine what type of blood disorder patients have. Um, So what is the most common uh, platelet disorder that patients have? And what are the different types of these? Actually, the most common, uh, what I think you're going for is the most common congenital bleeding disorder. And this would be the von Willebrand's um, disease. Uh, And so this is, uh, there's different types. It's either complete absence or dysfunction of von Willebrand's factor. Uh, Type 1 von Willebrand's disease is the most common. um, And this has to do with reduced quantity of the of the factor um, and for these you can treat with uh, desmopressin or cryoprecipitate uh, type 2 uh, you have enough von, uh, uh, enough of the factor but it doesn't work well so it, it's a qualitative dysfunction and then in type 3 you have almost no so it's almost complete absence um, uh, so with these patients uh, desmopressin doesn't work and the only treatment is uh, cryoprecip- uh, cryoprecipitate and remember cryoprecipitate for two bleeding disorders. Uh, it's You're going to use cryoprecipitate in patients with this platelet disorders or patients that have uh, fibrin, that need uh, fibrinogen. So otherwise you can use FFP and other um, factors, but cryoprecipitate is best uh, for those two disorders. Uh, so Jason, uh, we're going to go off topic a little bit here and just cover some of the most other common uh, bleeding disorders. Um the ones we hear about most commonly in med school. So just quickly, what are the, the factors that are missing in hemophilia? 
Uh, well, there's a couple different kinds. So hemophilia A uh, is the if, uh, a deficiency, deficiency in factor eight, and this is a sex-linked recessive disorder. These are young males that you'll see with the hemarthrosis in. Uh, on your coagulation factors, you'll see a prolongation of the PTT, or the intrinsic uh, pathway on your coagulation cascade. For these, you, you treat with either recombinant or with either recombinant factor eight or a cryoprecipitate, uh, and that's in, so. Also, the other type of hemophilia is hemophilia, hemophilia B, um, otherwise known as Christmas disease. This is a deficiency in factor nine. It's also sex-linked recessive. Uh, again, you see a prolongation of your PTT, and for these, you treat with recombinant factor uh, nine or with FFP. So, one thing. Uh to remember the intrinsic versus extrinsic, I always have the hardest time remembering this. But if you think of, especially when you think of Coumadin um, and, and what it works on, you think of WEPT, so Warfarin Extrinsic Pathway PT. So the extrinsic pathway is PT or INR, and that is what Warfarin acts on, which is factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. And then PTT is the intrinsic pathway. So w when you're dealing with the hemophilias, um, so wept for extrinsic pathway and warfarin. All right, let's say you have a, a patient. He's a 58-year-old gentleman who's had a cabbage a year ago and is now undergoing a lap coli. He's in the hospital for a couple days post-op. He had to convert to open. And the intern tells you that his, his platelets so that were 250 three days ago are now uh, about 75. Uh, what are you concerned about? Uh, so this is a you know patient with with a history with an exposure to heparin who now is dropping platelets. Um, I would be concerned about a, a hit or a, a you know a heparin induced thrombocytopenia, um, and this can progress to hit with two T's, which is adding on the thrombosis onto the end of that. So Jason, what are the two tests that you can use to confirm hit? Uh, so you can uh, either use an, uh, the, an ELISA test, which tests for the antibody, which is an antibody against the platelet and, and, and factor platelet factor four, as well as a, a serotonin release assay. And, and the important thing for HIT is a patient has to have had prior exposure to heparin from a previous surgery or previous hospitalization um, for them to be at risk for HIT. So that's one thing you want to make sure. And just a little clinical pearl as well. Uh, you know, I've actually heard of patients who have, you know, clinical hit and you can't find any new heparin exposure, but you have to remember a lot of the lines that you use in the ICU, a lot of your central lines uh, are uh, heparin lines. So even that exposure can uh, lead to the development of, of hit. So John, uh, how are you going to treat this patient? Uh, so you obviously want to get rid of the heparin as soon as possible. Uh, you want to start a direct thrombin inhibitor, such as a gatraban, or uh, you also want to convert to uh, treat them with Coumadin uh, in the future for patients who have thrombosis, uh, treat them for three months, and then patients uh, without thrombosis, you want to treat them for one month. All right, so let's say you have a patient who's a 25-year-old male, comes in with a swollen leg, uh, has a DVT. This is the patient's first DVT, and on your astute uh, history taking, you find out the patient has multiple relatives who've had DVTs. What kind of avenues do you go to and go down now? 
you know, so I'd be very concerned that this, this patient has, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the hypercoagulable disorders. So, you know, generally these patients get, you know, kind of, and specifically if you can get them, uh, you know, before they're started, uh, you know, on anticoagulation and, and send, you know, the litany of tests, you're worried about a factor five, you know, the, the, the Leiden mutation, um, you're worried about the, the prothrombin gene defect, the, the G, you know, 20, what is it? Two zero two one zero twenty. 2021 0. How do you say that? 2210. 2210. Yeah, there you go. You're worried about a protein C or S deficiency, antithrombin 3 deficiency. There's, you know, hyperhomocystin anemia and the, you know, antiphospholipid syndrome. So let's break some of these down a little bit to make them applicable to the ab site. So you have the patient, uh, you know, say it's this patient and you put them on, this is kind of related to the factor 5 light deficiency, but you put them on, uh, Coumadin and you didn't start heparin and you didn't bridge them and they get uh, skin necrosis. Jason, can you talk to us about why that happens and what the concern is? Yeah, so that's that's the you know warfarin induced skin necrosis. Um, it, it's due to the uh, it, it's you generally don't see it in normal people. You'll see it in people who maybe have an underlying uh, protein C deficiency, and it's due to the short half life of, of protein C and S, which are the first to decrease in, in compared to the other pro uh, pro coagulation factors, and so this results in a period of a relative uh, high hyperthrombotic state um, after you, you start uh, Coumadin. Protein CNS are actually uh, anticoagulants, uh, intrinsic anticoagulants, and they have a very short half-life. So if you start warfarin, those will disappear first before the rest of them, and they're at risk for thrombosis from that. Okay, so we'll just we'll keep moving on through all these different uh, kind of inherited hypercoagulable states. Uh, so, hyperhomocysteinemia is one that's not frequently seen that's uh, can be tested and uh, has a, a pretty easy treatment. How do you treat those? Uh, you have them take their prenatal vitamins or uh, folic acid and B twelve. And uh, uh, let's say, you know, let's talk a little bit about antithrombin-3 deficiency. Um, it's one of the more common ones. You know, you can first, you can first notify or identify it um, after previous heparin exposure. It can kind of present itself. What's a, a key thing to know about these patients? How do you treat them and specifically what doesn't work with them? So the, the answer is the heparin does not work in these patients. Uh, the way you treat them is that you give a recombinant AT3 concentrate or FFP prior to give them heparin and then you transfer them over to uh, Coumadin later on. Right. So this just highlights the point that heparin, the way heparin works is it potentiates antithrombin-3, um, which is your natural anticoagulate, and it makes it a thousand times more potent. So if you don't have antithrombin-3 in your body, heparin will not work, and these patients are at risk, especially if they're undergoing vascular surgery or cardiac surgery. Okay, John, how about, can you talk to us a little bit about the antiphospholipid, uh, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome? You know, what, what patients, you know, what's a typical clinical presentation or, you know, clinical history you see in these patients and uh, what causes it and how do you treat it? Uh, so even though lupus is my favorite answer in all step, uh, step tests, uh, not all of these patients have uh, uh, lupus. Uh, it's caused by antibodies to the cardiolipin and lupus anticoagulants. Um, these patients will have a, uh, a prolonged PTT, uh, but they also present as hypercoagulable. Uh, we treat them with heparin and warfarin. Uh, so I think, you know, some of the, something that's highly testable is just rogue memorization is just the mechanism of action uh, of some of these different anticoagulants. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Arrington, if you just want to kind of lead us through this discussion and we can talk about the uh, mechanism of action of all these different drugs. Sure thing. We talked a little bit about this uh, already, but 
patients who are on warfarin, uh, how does warfarin work? So warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. Um, and vitamin K is, you know, remember the extrinsic pathway wept. Um, so it, the factors involved in it are 10, 9, uh, 7, and 2. And so warfarin and protein CNS. And so this, uh, that's how warfarin works by blocking those factors. Are there any patients you would not want to use warfarin for? Uh, yeah, see, this is it's it's contraindicated in in in, in pregnant women. Uh, so those are women that need to be on uh, heparin or or you know one of the uh, low mo- low molecular weight heparins. Yeah, also, it's been shown to be less uh, efficacious in patients who have uh, malignancy or known malignancy. And so, an important point with Coumadin, you have a lot of patients coming in the ER, and we'll talk a little more about this in the trauma sections, but you want to, uh, to reverse these patients, uh, you can give them vitamin K, but vitamin K takes about six hours to reverse them, so they better be bleeding very slowly, um, or, the, or they're going to exsanguinate, so you can use vitamin K. A faster way to do it is FFP, and we'll talk a little bit more about the components of blood, um, but FFP will reverse it pretty quickly um, as soon as you can thaw it and get it to the patient, but if you really need to uh, reverse them immediately, you can use the prothrombin complex, um, which will reverse it immediately. So that is how you reverse Coumadin. Now, something also commonly used that we talked about is, is heparin. And we talked about uh, a little bit about heparin works. How, how do you reverse heparin? So heparin is reversed with uh, protamine, which binds heparin. Now, my anesthesiologists are always telling me they have to give the protamine slowly. Is there a reason they do that, or are they just being extra cautious for no reason? Yeah, you know, one of the, protamine, one of the side, common side effects is hypotension, uh, bradycardia. Uh, you can have uh, decreased uh, or, you know, can kind of induce a uh, heart failure or have decreased cardiac function uh, when you give uh, protamine quickly. And, and Kevin, where does protamine come from? It's like sperm of like a salmon or something. Yeah, salmon sperm, which I think is very important to know. Now, how do medications like uh, Lovenox or the low molecular weight heparins differ from just basic regular old heparin? So uh, low, low molecular heparin, weight heparin or, or Lovenox or uh, the others uh, act similar to heparin, but it works in combination with, with antithrombin 3 and only um, neutralizes factor 10A. It's important to know about this as, as well as you cannot reverse uh, Lovenox and low molecular weight heparins with protamine. And there's sometimes you'll have patients that will still have thrombosis or PEs or something on Lovenox. So you can check check a factor 10A level in them to see if you're getting the inhibition of factor 10A that you need. Um, it's kind of something that's happening, especially in trauma patients that are doing this more. I get a lot of patients these days who are coming in my office telling me that they saw some of these new medications on TV. Um, we call them novel anticoagulants, things like Perdaxa, Eliquis, Zarelto. Uh, how do those work? Uh, so these are, you know, the Pradaxa, Eliquis, Aralto, or, you know, these are the Dabigatran, Apixaban, Rivaroxaban. These are direct thrombin inhibitors. Um, and these are can be very difficult to reverse. Uh, you can, PCC does have some effect um, and is useful uh, to reverse some of these. Um, and, uh, and for Pradaxa, you can uh, do dialysis actually to reverse it. Yeah, and there, there actually, I, I doubt this will show up on the app site, but there is, there is a, a new monoclonal antibody um, directed against Pradaxa as well. 
It's one of the other medications I use often in my practice. Uh, um, usually when a patient comes in and has a bypass graft that's uh, occluded all of a sudden, or patients who have uh, iliofemoral DVTs, I'm going to instill some medication that I tell the patient's going to bust the clot. What, what does that do? Or what are those? Yeah, so this is uh, the thrombolytics or uh, TPA. And generally uh, streptokinase or urokinases, uh, the ones you kind of hear about. And what this does is it activates plasminogen, um, and plasminogen actually um, breaks down the fibrinogen, um, and so you can break up the clots that way. Uh, important thing to know with TPA is that um, you have to check uh, fibrinogen levels in these patients because their fibrinogens can get too low and then they're at risk for bleeding. Um, and then for reversing this, uh, you use aminocopoic acid for patients that overdose on TPA. So John, are there patients where you would not want to use some of these thrombolytics? Yeah, the AppSite does stress some of these uh, uh, absolute contraindications to thrombolytic use. Uh, so active internal bleeding, a recent CVA or neurosurgery within the last three months, any intracranial pathology or recent GI bleeding are absolute uh, contraindications. Other major contraindications um, include surgery within the past 10 days, any organ biopsies or uh, recent uh, pregnancy and delivery, left heart thrombus, active pepto- peptic ulcer, um, recent major trauma or any uncontrolled hypertension. Okay. And, uh, kind of close out hematology, kind of a difficult topic to cover in a podcast, but, uh, just to hit up a few of the factor questions that you'll get. So they're going to ask, you know, which factors are not uh, synthesized in the liver. Your liver does most of your coagulation factors. The only one it does not do is factor eight. And this is uh, synthesized in your endothelium. And the other one that's also in your endothelium is uh, von Willebrand's factor. And what's important about this is why desmopressin works for patients with platelet, like uh, that have uremic uh, disease and their platelets aren't working. Desmopressin actually causes the von Willebrands to come out of the endothelium. So you, you don't need a functioning liver for either of these. So just quickly to cover the different blood products. Uh, so the ones we're going to talk about here are cryoprecipitate and FFP. So the times that you're going to use cryoprecipitate is patients uh, that have von Willebrand's disease or hemophilia A um, because hem- von- cryoprecipitate has a high level of factor eight and then also patients that have low levels of fibrinogen. So those are, so the, everyone else pretty much gets FFP if they have a bleeding disorder. So one last time, von Willebrand's disease, hemophilia A or low levels of fibrinogen, use cryoprecipitate. And then for FFP, it has high levels of all coagulation factors, protein C, S, and antithrombin-3. And that's one thing we did not discuss. If you have a patient that has antithrombin-3 deficiency, uh, you can give them FFP and then give them heparin, and then they will actually get the benefit from heparin. Um, So those are some important points. Last. Uh, PT, like we've discussed, the WEPT measures factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, if you don't remember that by now. It's the best test for liver synthetic function. And then uh, the PTT measures most factors except for factor 7, which is the most volatile factor. Um, And for PTT, you want it between 60 to 90 generally. And for the PT, which is measured in INR, you want it between 1 to 2. And then for the Routine anticoagulation, if they're checking ACTs like in a surgery uh, for routine anticoagulation, you want 150 to 200 for ACT, the activated clotting time. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening. That concludes our quick absite review for hematology and our uh, hematologic disorders. Uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Nathan Aronson for, from uh, VM for being here today uh, for do our for our absite review. Dr. Aronson, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 absite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.